Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening, thank you for being with ADH. At a time when I think you'd be excused for wondering what happens next, President Biden's not coming to Australia. I'll talk to Peggy about that shortly, but it's hardly a story. Do these climate change alarmists believe they can climb into private jets and belch out carbon dioxide and then tell you and me and everybody else that we have to face high electricity bills because we can't use coal? It emits carbon dioxide. I'm sorry, these people are hypocrites, a lot of them. You and I do business via Zoom calls. Why can't they? Biden's not coming to Australia because America has a debt ceiling of a staggering $31.4 trillion. That's 46.8 trillion Australian. It's hard to fathom how much money that is, but it is more than the entire value of the US economy. And the Democrats want it raised because even at that debt level, they can't pay their way and they're in government. And of course, if the US defaults on its debts, there would be a worldwide recession, stock markets would collapse and jobs would be lost. Over the past 100 years, the US federal debt has gone from 408 billion, 408 billion in 1922, 100 years later, 30.9 trillion. Biden can come to the G7 meeting in Japan. Well, why can't India, America, Australia and Japan, the so-called quad meet there? The Australian Prime Minister does himself no credit by saying that the American Congress plus the Senate should raise the debt ceiling without argument. Sycophantic rubbish. The Republicans want to cut spending, and that's created an impasse. But I suspect that Biden's absence from Australia may be covering up for the fact that he is not, from a health point of view, capable of making the visit. The West is leaderless at a time when China has increased its military budget by over 7%. Increased. The figures are also eye-watering, a $230 billion increase in China's military budget. That's in one year, this year. What's China got in mind? Well, it certainly will be spooking the United States government concerned about Beijing's strategic intentions in the wake of rising tensions with Taiwan. Meanwhile, Taiwan has extended mandatory military service from four months to one year, And Taiwan's been revitalising its own defence industries, including building submarines for the first time. And of course, Russia has undertaken massive expenditure in the war on Ukraine. And this raises concerns in the West that Beijing may provide Moscow with military assistance. This is the geopolitical problem of unwavering support for Ukraine. One consequence of that is to drive Russia and China closer together. I've talked about this before and that would change significantly the world order. Now, I discussed last night this nuclear energy issue. I noticed the most recent of polls shows that Australians do support adding nuclear energy to the nation's energy mix by a two to one margin. Again, highlighting what I said last night, Bowen, the energy minister, is dangerously out of his depth. And we may not be out of trouble, by the way, on the interest rate front, Minutes of the Reserve Bank's meeting early this month indicate the Reserve Bank may address stagflation. That's, that's inflation that stays stubbornly high. And the Reserve Bank may respond by keeping interest rates going up for longer. 
I'm certainly not convinced that Chalmers and Treasury know how to handle this. And what the hell's going on at PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of Australia's big four accounting firms? It's been called a taxation scandal. There's to be an inquiry headed by Ziggy Switkowski. He's done this sort of stuff before. But to the average Australian, the story put simply is staggering. You see, these big accounting firms have unbelievable access to the tax office. Indeed, they are prevailed upon by the tax office to advise on tax legislation because they're supposed to be the experts and so the tax office wants legislation and tax practice to work. So you have this accounting outfit, PricewaterhouseCoopers, advising the tax office and the government how to frame legislation on tax rules so those rules and the legislation work. And then huh, they advise their clients how to get around the very rules that they have helped create. That shouldn't create a problem unless greed enters into the equation, which my friend Terry McCran has described as the defining driver across the 21st century business sector. Greed can lead people in potentially dangerous directions. Terry McCran is right though, and he says we need a far bigger and deeper inquiry into the whole mess of advisory and other financial relationships between accounting firms, the tax office and the government. Meanwhile, PricewaterhouseCooper have got a massive corporate fight on their hands. Integrity will be at the center of the fight. And the Sofranoff inquiry into the Higgins affair continues in Canberra. The ACT chief prosecutor, Shane Drumgold, is in a mountain of trouble. Bruce Learman's defence barrister has now accused Drumgold of taking a pejorative stab at his client and abandoning impartiality to align himself with Brittany Higgins. Stephen Wybrow told the inquiry quite rightly that Drumgold was not required to say he believed he had a reasonable chance of convicting Learman for the alleged rape of Miss Higgins when announcing that he would not pursue a retrial due to concern for the mental health of Miss Higgins. In a telling rejoinder to the inquiry, Mr. Wybrow SC, who represented the accused Learman at the trial said, and I quote, it's hard to think of any cases where there were so many things that the complainant had said, that's Higgins, which were able to be demonstrated to be wrong or inconsistent, or in some cases said knowing they were wrong, but for a reason. Unquote, it seems the whole criminal justice system is on trial. And I'll just make a mention again of this beleaguered former St George rugby league coach, Anthony Griffin, former because he was sacked on the spot yesterday. One wonders whether management should have been sacked and Griffin left to do his job. I've never met the man but his CV contains a history of winning as a coach. And whenever he was given a gig in previous coaching jobs, his teams won. Back in 2011, Ivan Henjak was sacked as the Broncos coach. Griffin came in and they finished third on the NRL ladder. You'll recall he went from the Broncos to Penrith. He guided Penrith to consecutive finals, but in 2018 with Penrith second on the ladder, he was dumped. In 2020, he took over at St George and he's tried to build the club. Now the management at St George are looking for a new coach when they've barely given this bloke a chance to turn the club around as he's done in previous coaching assignments going back to 1995. Seems the old axiom applies, doesn't it? Club management get the gold mine, the coach gets the shaft. It is a disturbing truth, but there are millions of Australians who feel 
that when they most need government, they are abandoned by government. I'm not talking about handouts. I'm talking of repair that government should affect immediately as a result of government failure. As far back as 2016, I spoke to then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about properties around Australia contaminated by PFAS chemicals, polyfluoroalkyl substances, cancer-causing chemicals. I wrote also to the then Defence Minister Maurice Payne. Now we're talking about chemicals that have seeped into the soil and water tables in and around defence sites. I argued for years that the Air Force had used these chemicals to fight fires. I confess to a personal interest because I went to school at Oakey on the Darling Downs and I know that area well. I also spoke to people at Williamtown in the Hunter Valley. Property owners in surrounding areas were told for years not to drink the water. Malcolm Turnbull told me before the 2016 election and during the election campaign that yes, we'll fix them, or words to that effect. I suggested the government should buy the properties because the government for years had done nothing, both Liberal and Labor, had refused to compensate property owners. There was a parliamentary inquiry into all of this. It was a horror show. The use of this foam was phased out 15 years ago, but federal governments repeatedly denied victims any kind of justice. These were chemicals used to fight fires, but they were toxic. The foams caused widespread contamination in the soil, in the groundwater and in surface water. Emotional testimonials were given to the parliamentary inquiry. One victim sensibly told the inquiry, quote, if the chemical is now banned universally across the country, which it was, he said, don't we change the atmosphere? What I see clearly coming from that ban is a recognition that we have a dangerous toxic chemical, unquote. Government did nothing. Worse than that, in May 2017, a so-called independent panel advised the federal government there was limited or no evidence to link exposure to PFAS chemicals with human disease, but that health effects could not be ruled out. Massive bloody cover-up. God, these people annoy me. In its submission to the inquiry, the then Liberal government ruled out purchasing properties. I've spoken to many of these people in detail. I spoke to Jennifer Spencer, who was living two kilometres from the edge of the Oakey Army base. She and her partner Chris bought a five-acre property in 2011. They set up stables and racehorses. They dreamt of building a house on the land. In 2013, they were informed of a contamination issue with their bore and groundwater. They were told the bore, which supplied 950 gallons of water an hour, was contaminated. They would have to find another water supply. The local council told them they couldn't build a house on the land because the land was contaminated. They were told their property was worth nothing. Both Jennifer and her partner Chris were tested, showing Chris had alarming levels of these chemicals in his system. They gave evidence to the Senate inquiry. It came to nothing. Diane Priddle and her husband David were cattle breeders. Their cattle were amongst the top 10% for their breed. They bought an 80 hectare property in Oakey. They spent every cent maintaining the land the Defence Department knew about the contamination in 2003, they bought in 2005. Had they known, they never would have purchased the property. When I spoke to them way back then, the real estate agent told them their property was worth nothing. Darby Tunner at the time lived within a kilometre of the Oki Army base. He was 67 in 2018. He'd been there his whole life. His 30 acre property had been in the family for more than 100 years. All the properties around him had contaminated bores from these chemicals. He was tested 
and found alarming levels of the chemicals in his system. His twin sister Cheryl died in 2015 from organ failure. His horses had chemicals in their blood at twice the normal levels. The racecourse pool at Oakey had been tested and the chemicals were nearly 74 times the normal limit. Erin Brockovich came to Australia to speak on this very issue, PFAS contamination. I interviewed her several times. She's one of the world's great consumer rights advocates. Her story was told, as you would know, in the year 2000 film, Erin Brockovich, starring Julia Roberts. I spoke to her several times about this issue. When she visited way back in 2016, she said to me, Alan, this is your country. This is your family. This is your health. This is your water. And you have a right to it and a right to fight for it and for each other. Well, I spoke to her about Oki in Queensland and Catherine in Northern Territory and Williamtown in New South Wales. I wrote a stack of letters, as I have said, to then Prime Minister Turnbull and then Defence Minister Maurice Payne. In fact, I wrote to Malcolm Turnbull on June 10, 2016, again on June 16 and again on June 28. I wrote to the then Defence Minister Maurice Payne on June 10, June 29, June 30, July 26, July 28, August 2, September 8. As I said earlier, Malcolm Turnbull promised before the election in 2016 there would be urgent consideration of a buyback. Nothing was done. For one simple reason, the Defence Department is one of the most evasive and cover-up instrumentalities you could ever meet. Witness the rubbish going on now about the Brereton report. The financial plight of these people was routinely ignored. In Williamtown, residents were being delivered bottled water. But the Defence Department knew of this contamination way back in 2003. They didn't tell anyone until 2012. But they did release a report, 2,435 pages, which residents were expected to read. And amongst other things, it admitted that the toxic chemicals would continue to spread throughout Oki for the next 100 years. I made the point repeatedly that there were up to 36 defence force bases around Australia where the local environment could be contaminated. And prior to the arrival of Erin Brockovich, more than 60 other locations were identified by authorities believed to be contaminated by these synthetic compounds. Typical of government, the Federal Department of Environment and Science said that potential PFAS contamination is monitored by a number of government agencies. Nothing was done. Shine lawyers filed a class action against the Commonwealth of Australia and the Department of Defence in August 2017. They'd previously filed a class action in May that year. Now, I make this point, 2017, that's about six years ago. Now, the federal government, and I have to confess, I don't know who that is because they've been swerving and squealing to get out of this for years. So I'm not blaming the Albanese government. They settled a class action lawsuit this week for $132.7 million split between about 30,000 complainants. It was settled because that class action of six years ago, after all these years, was to begin in the federal court yesterday, Monday. I don't expect Prime Minister Albanese or Attorney General Dreyfus to be full bottle on this. They weren't in government. The outcome is still to be approved by the federal court, but 132 million is nothing. And what's worse, despite the settlement, the payout is not an admission of liability. 132 million to be shared amongst 30,000 affected Australians equals $4,400 a head for people whose livelihoods have been ruined and whose properties and assets have been rendered worthless, $4,400.
Government is big and bloated and expensive, where it should respond in the interests of citizens that it purports to represent, it's cowardly and gutless. And therein, I've delivered to you the proof. Well, the crisis in America for Biden, President Biden worsens. The headlines today, and you'll hear about all this today, they bear little relationship to the reality. I've worked at the highest level in government. These meetings are by and large a sham, these G7s and quad meetings. The bureaucrats have the conclusions written before the meeting starts. So today we've been told all day that President Biden won't be visiting Australia as if this is a terrible thing for a quad meeting. That's a meeting between India, Japan, America and Australia. But the same leaders will be in Japan for a G7 meeting. Seven of them, not four. Do these people have the technology to conduct a Zoom meeting? Instead, all are ad advocates of this climate change rubbish, and yet they're all flying in jets that belch out the very gas that that, have you believe, is bringing the world to an end. Ben Dominic is a 41-year-old American writer and TV commentator. Comment and commenting on atrocious polls for Biden a week ago, personal ratings diabolical, approval rating at 36%, way, way behind Donald Trump, Identifying the mess that America is in, Dominic concluded, and I quote, the truth about Joe Biden is that he's too old, he's too slow, and only diehard partisans say otherwise. This means getting re-elected will require him to destroy his opponents. The media will help him try, but even they can't accomplish miracles, unquote. Now, Peggy Grandy has been telling us this for months and months and months. Let's go to Peggy, therefore, on the latest in America. Peggy, good to have you again. You've been saying all of this, but firstly, this visit to Australia uh, by Biden, that's off. Headlines about that. What on earth does that mean? Well, Alan, thank you as always for having me on. And thank you for covering a lot of things that even our media doesn't always cover. And, you know, maybe I can say congratulations that Biden's not coming to Australia. It's probably better for you all that he's not. But it just goes to show, you know, I do a lot of work in the United Kingdom as well. And these ally countries are really being put as Obama used to call it, to the back of the queue. Are these allies' relationships important or not? Are they given priority? And the reason that he's canceling this part of the trip is because he has delayed these budget talks. A hundred days ago, he should have been having budget talks and he waited until today and he's realizing now, oh wow, we have a lot of work to do to close the gap between what the House has proposed and what the White House is willing to sign off on. And yeah. so this is serious business. He's delayed it. It's his own fault. And he really is not sending the right signal to his allies at a time in the world when our enemies are aligning and inc becoming increasingly dangerous. Yeah, look, I'm not a cynic, but I have to tell you, uh, I'm sure that one of the reasons here, and this is a cover for the fact that Biden is not capable really of traveling these distances. And we saw that in relation to the coronation. And this is a cover, the debt ceiling. Now, I've got to say in Australia, Anthony Albanese, uh, can you just wake up a little bit and stop being so sycophantic? The debt ceiling is a ceiling beyond which the government can't borrow money. And it's been constantly raised and it's now at some trillions of dollars, 300 or something trillions of dollars. The figures just mind boggle. And so the Republicans are saying in the uh, Congress and the Senate over there, they're saying, well, listen, you're going to have to cut spending. Stop raising the debt, cut back spending. 
the Democrats want to go on spending. So there's a crisis here and the debt ceiling will be reached by June 1 or something. And he says he's got to stay home. Uh, it's a heap of nonsense. But Peggy, more than that, more importantly, this Durham report. Now, you would be interested in broadcasting to me from America. I have to tell you, there is not a word about this in our country, not a single syllable in our country. Now, the Durham report basically is a report by the special counsel, John Durham, in which he questions and challenges the integrity of the Department of Justice and the FBI. And he says they, quote, failed to uphold their mission of strict fidelity to the law when they launched an investigation into Trump's relationship with Russia over the 2016 election. Now, this is a scathing indictment, Peggy, of the FBI, the Department of Justice and Joe Biden. So what's the reaction in America? Well, it's interesting because even the mainstream media on the left cannot really dismiss this. They've kind of tried to play it off as if it's a nothing burger. And maybe in a way it is because it only shows what we've known is true all along. This was a political witch hunt. It was started by Hillary Clinton and paid for by her and her campaign. It completely exonerates Donald Trump as not being a Russian agent, as not having colluded with Russia to interfere with the 2016 election. And so it does indict very clearly the FBI, the DOJ, saying that they weaponized the full force of the American government against the president-elect, who then became president of the United States. And think about it. If this did not happen, think of what a different presidency he would have had. The first two years, if not three years, he had headwinds against him every moment of every day. And you could argue that a lot of the indictments that came down, a lot of the personnel changes that had to be made, a lot of the future charges against him all stem from this, which was proven to be categorically false. It was baseless. And what an embarrassment to our Federal Bureau of Investigation that they did no investigation yeah, or yeah. chose not to yeah. investigate very just, false claims that had no merit to them at I'll, all. I'll come to that again just to, to clarify that debt ceiling. In 1922 in America, the debt ceiling was $408 billion. It is currently $30.9 trillion, trillion, and the Democrats just say, keep raising it, keep raising it, keep spending. Just back to this Durham report, Peggy, I'm, Peggy, I'm just reading from it here. He says, to, the, the Durham talks about the Trump investigation in relation to China being, quote, markedly different from the government's level of interest in Hillary Clinton's campaign. And the report said the FBI briefed Clinton staffers, this is what the Durham report says, briefed Clinton staffers on information of possible threats aimed at the Clinton campaign, but ignored intelligence it received from, quote, a trusted foreign source pointing to a Clinton campaign plan to vilify Trump by tying him to Vladimir Putin so as to divert attention from her own concerns relating to her use of a private email server. I mean, what is the definition of corruption, Peggy? Well, this is third world tactics that we see happening in the United States of America. And it's really sad and scary because what we see is basically the difference between the throttle and the brakes. They throttled into any sliver of accusation against Donald Trump or any of the people that he was surrounded with and put the brakes on and tamped down any sort of information about Hillary Clinton, um, any of Obama's people or now the Biden people. And, you know, they say that after the Mueller report came out, 
up that they made some fundamental changes in the FBI and the DOJ. But they said that that took place in 2019. And what's happened since then? They've continued to bury the Hunter Biden laptop story. And oh, by the way, there was a raid on Mar-a-Lago. And so nothing has changed. Those two agencies are still being weaponized for political purposes. And the American people should be very very afraid of this and congress should do their best yeah. to defund yeah. it if we can't get to the bottom of how well, to fix it it's interesting because there was a white house press conference as there are every other day he never appears this fellow but his press spokesman is this woman karine jean-pierre however only one question at the white house press conference only one question now remember i talked about this last night about biden being totally protected right throughout the course of the campaign only one question from a real clear news reporter philip wegman he referred to the Durham report and asked for a reaction at this White House press briefing. And he asked the press secretary, Jean-Pierre, what is the White House reaction to special counsel report on how the FBI handled the Trump-Russia probe? She responded, I'll leave that to the Department of Justice. He went on, the journalist, the president, he said, talks often about how he wants the Department of Justice and the FBI to remain independent above the fray he said that report reflects the opposite. Does the president agree with special counsel Durham that there needs to be a wholesale change at the FBI? I mean, they just ran. She then left the podium. She walked away the podium. And this is the same woman prior to becoming the White House press secretary who wrote multiple tweets supporting the theory that former President Trump was, quote, illegitimate. She taught, took part in a Russian collusion, in the argument about the Russian collusion. And in December 2016, she agreed with the Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, that Trump's campaign was, quote, all in on Russian interference. I mean, this goes right to the core of the administration. See, Peggy, it's not just a collapse of administration, is it? But a corruption of the media. That a candidate can go the entire presidential general election, which he did, without taking a single tough question from a reporter, and now a Durham report, which goes right to the heart of government, and they won't answer any questions. Well, they should be ashamed of themselves because they've been complicit in this cover-up. They have no intellectual curiosity for the facts. They have predetermined conclusions for a political agenda. And that entire White House press corps, minus just a few honest and integrity um, filled reporters should be ashamed of themselves because this this president who claimed to be one who wanted to run the most transparent administration ever has done nothing but hide from reporters. He mocks and laughs at them when they ask important questions. Corrine Jean-Pierre continues to deflect and won't respond to the questions that not only yeah. the White House press corps yeah. has, but the American people have. Yeah. They serve at the pleasure well, of the American the White people House. and they are not this is the White House, White House press secretary that Peggy's talking about. The White House press secretary. That's the spokesperson for the president. And the same woman in 2016 tweeted that the election that Trump won was, quote, I'm reading here, stolen. That's what she tweeted. She praised Jimmy Carter for saying Trump didn't actually win. Hello? I mean, these are people who are throwing stones at Donald Trump every time he says his election was stolen from him. Right. And here's this woman when he won in 2016, actually tweeting that the election result was stolen. Praise Jimmy Carter for saying Trump didn't actually win. I mean, this goes right to the heart of democracy, doesn't it? 
It does. And this is Banana Republic tactics. And if you've seen this week, you know, there's a whistleblower from the IRS that came out to talk about some of the Hunter Biden um, investigations that are going on. Well, news came out today that 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 investigator, the whistleblower and his entire team has been removed from the Hunter Biden probe, which is retaliatory. And it's not allowed under the whistleblower's protections. And so this administration does whatever they want. The spokeswoman says whatever she wants from the podium because they know that they're not going to be held to account. And this is this is really unprecedented what is happening, especially from administration that claimed to be a uniter and transparent. Sorry, sorry, Peggy. Sorry to be interrupting you there. I mean, this is a really important story. In that article I referred to, written by Ben Dominic for The Spectator magazine, and he talks about Biden dodging all but the most obsequious interviewers. Peggy, what an indictment of the media that they would demean themselves by sucking up to an incompetent leader. I mean, one key point amongst many made by Ben Dominic was his point that, quote, the direction of the country feels terrible. Now, you've been talking about this for months and months and months. If I could just take tonight with you this issue of violence in America. Now, in the Democrat-run city of Portland, Walmart has closed its final two stores due to rampant shoplifting and vandalism. What does the Democrat leadership have to say about that? Well, they've welcomed that really a cultural rot. And they have continued to protect protect and promote illegals and criminals at the expense of true victims. And, you know, this really is one of the core tenets of a Western civilization or even our democracy, faith, freedom, family. It really is making American life here um, unlivable. People are afraid. They're scared. They're hiding Mm. in their homes. Mm. They're afraid to go out. They're closing their shops. San Francisco just closed two flagship Nordstrom stores, which are very high-end clothing stores, and Mm. just said, basically, we're out. And so these deep blue Democrat-run cities are going to not be able to continue to thrive. And Portland is example of it. I was in Seattle this past week and the streets of Seattle are uninhabitable and very dangerous. I was was just going to talk about Seattle. I was going to talk about Seattle because it's Democrat run and Target is being ravaged by shoplifters. One staff member told the media that theft happens, quote, every 10 minutes. And Peggy made reference to San Francisco. This was once the gem of the West Coast, now run by Democrats. Whole Foods has closed its flagship store after only a year violence, violence, then there's homelessness, then there's the border, we could talk all night. But look, Peggy, we'll leave it there for tonight, but I do want to address the emerging, well, it's not emerging, it's a continuing issue, but a frightening issue in relation to those illegal immigrants crossing the border and the problems this is creating for cities in America. The presidency, the administration is over. Surely to God, it's game, set and match. Is there anyone in the Democratic Party who's going to tell Biden he can't run again? Well, I think a lot of these Democrat mayors who have really finally spoken out against this immigration issue and the lack of Biden clarity on its policies, the Biden administration continues to say the borders closed. And yet we see people pour over by the tens of thousands, bringing drugs and human trafficking and even people on the terrorist watch list. And so they know Biden is not providing solutions, but the Democrat Party picked him. They're going to smuggle him and hide him in the basement 2.0 this time around. And they're kind of stuck with him. And so they're going to continue to cover Mm. for him like they did Mm. last time around.
Amazing. All right, Peggy, as I said, we could talk all night. Great to talk to you. Great to have your insights. And I hope this is instructive too to many of our Australian people because the leadership of the free world is America. Biden is that leader and it's vulnerable or doesn't exist. And Putin and Xi and all of these people are just making hay. Talk to you next week, Peggy. Lovely to hear from you. There she is, Peggy Grandy in America. So many important issues to America and the world. Thank you. I've warned endlessly about the consequences of the utterly mistaken energy policy being pursued by the Albanese government, articulated by the arrogant and ill-informed Chris Bowen. One of the consequences of escalating energy prices is that business, especially manufacturing, is moving offshore. It's simply too dear to do business in Australia. And this has cost jobs and has had an unacceptable impact on the national economy. Well, early today, the Australian Workers' Union National Secretary, the 39-year-old Dan Walton, spoke in Sydney about the Labor Party's free trade approach to critical mineral exports to China. And he rightly argued about the national security risks. Put in layman's language, we're exporting our minerals, raw materials to China, so that they not only grow their wealth from this, but also they are making, with our mineral resources, the kind of weaponry to improve their military expansion. I believe the AWU is right when it's calling for the Labor government to tax unprocessed exports of critical minerals and to set a, quote, subsidy scheme to foster domestic refining, processing and component manufacturing, unquote. Dan Walton warned today of the vulnerabilities in the current supply chain, with 96% of Australia's lithium exported to China, where it's then processed and brought back to us in the form of components for batteries, solar panels and military equipment. Now, you'd have to be completely stupid to think that makes sense. But rest assured, those proposals will be ignored. Attacks on unprocessed exports of critical minerals. Think about it. We export this stuff to China, from which they make solar panels, wind turbines, and then we import back solar panels and wind turbines. Oh, God, don't talk to me. And then they improve their military capability via our exports. Oh, don't we have dumbbells running the joint? Why can't we process them here? Energy costs under the Bowen plan make us hopelessly uncompetitive. Let me demonstrate that Australian manufacturing is dying at a rate we've never before seen. In the last few weeks alone, we've seen the last brickworks in Western Australia close. We'll now import our bricks from India, Vietnam and China. We've seen Australia's last helium production plant announce it will close in the coming months. Now, helium isn't just used to blow up balloons. The gas is important for several industries with use in everything from MRI scanning machines to solar panel manufacturing. Meanwhile, we've seen Saputo Dairy close two of its facilities in the Gippsland region of Victoria. Supermarkets, the hospitality industry and the medical profession are now concerned about a looming carbon dioxide shortage. Yes, you heard that right. A looming carbon dioxide shortage. Believe it or not, this gas that activists claim is destabilising the climate has several critical uses in medicine and food. We now have supermarket food, grocery and beverage industries complaining of a shortage of carbon dioxide, which would threaten the supply of hundreds of consumer products from baby foods, packaged meat, fresh food and baked products. Carbon dioxide is used as a pure gas 
or in mixtures with other gases for anesthesia, stimulating breathing and sterilising equipment. But there are limited carbon dioxide source sites in Australia, so yet again, we rely on overseas suppliers. Construction companies are collapsing and nobody should be surprised. The price of steel and cement have gone up by around 40% over the last year or so. And then they've got energy costs on top of all of that. And now Australia's last paper manufacturing plant in Victoria has shut. So Australia can no longer produce a piece of white paper. Instead, we'll now import paper from Indonesia and China where tropical forests are being clear felled. I mean, if this isn't an own goal for the green movement, I don't know what is. Meanwhile, we continue to import 90% of our refined fuel products. We import 90% of our fertilizer. We import 90% of our pharmaceuticals. We're a sitting duck. We're totally reliant on international supply chains that since the COVID-19 pandemic have proven to be unreliable and unstable. We've got politicians allowing the closure of our biggest coal-fired power plants, which they hope to replace with weather-dependent wind turbines, which we'll have to import, and the price of these turbines has increased by 38% in two years. This comes after the price of the critical minerals from which wind turbines are made, having increased by 93% over the same period. But meanwhile, our politicians are prioritising the creation of an Indigenous voice to Parliament and reducing, they reckon, carbon emissions with a dangerous energy policy. And the Reserve Bank is hiking interest rates to reduce the inflationary problems that have been caused by the shutdown of our heavy industries and the debt accrued during the coronavirus lockdowns. As I've said before, there isn't a single issue in this country that hasn't been caused by politicians. The AWU have recognised the crisis. We should be processing these minerals in our own country. And if we're going to export them, then why shouldn't there be a tax on unprocessed exports? Like most things, I suspect Australia will wake up when it's too late. As you would remember, I spoke last night to Professor James Allen about the state of the Liberal Party in Australia. I've argued that the greatest transformation in the Liberal Party has not really been the takeover by the left within the party, grossly damaging as that has been, producing Labor governments right across mainland Australia and a federal government in Canberra. The left have had their say, and here is the party in representative ruin. The architects call themselves moderates, they're anything but. But they've had their say, and Liberal governments have been destroyed. But as I said last night, the Liberal Party has become an insider's party. I argued it would be easier to join the Freemasons or the Illuminati, which is a Bavarian secret sect, than to join your local Liberal Party branch. And I said, in today's world, exclusion is a form of bullying, but the Liberal Party, via its factional leaders, are masters of the art of bullying. And so the lefties, the factional lightweights, get the plum jobs. Others of merit are excluded. There are exceptions, notable exceptions. One is the South Australian Liberal Senator, Alex Antich, and he joins me. Alex, thank you for your time. Look, before we get to the Liberal Party and other things like The Voice, what have we been spared with Joe Biden not coming to Australia? I note that he would have arrived in this massive aircraft spewing out carbon dioxide, which he purports to condemn. Then the president's helicopter was to be flown to Australia so that Biden could travel between Sydney and Canberra. And his entourage for one bloke, mostly asleep at the wheel, an entourage of over 1,000 people. 1,000. Mm. Alex, please tell me how that can be justified. 
Well, look, Alan, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, we see this all the time, don't we, with the climate change brigade, the climate alarmists everywhere all around the world. They're always flying into Davos and other places on private jets, spewing out carbon. Um, and I guess what we would have been spared, well, we would have been spared uh, a lecture on climate change from someone who's putting a carbon footprint big enough to uh, create a volcano, I suppose, somewhere in the middle of mainland Australia. Um, I mean, the hypocrisy is there. It's everywhere to be seen. We had the Extinction Rebellion protesters here in Adelaide today. And, um, you know, we've seen this so many times before, but, of course, they were out protesting banning fossil fuels with a bloke on a rope uh, coming down from the top of a, a bridge, you know, a, a rope that was made of plastic, effectively, and a big plastic sign saying, end fossil fuels. <laughs> you can't write this stuff. I no. mean, people are going to, if they're going to walk the walk, they've got to talk the talk, and, and the President of the United States is no exception. Yes, I know. I mean, it's hard to know what all these people do. I mean, Biden was supposed to sign a new defence cooperation agreement with Papua New Guinea, but the media have already obtained the draft, and the G7 are going to meet in Tokyo, and that includes America, Australia, India, and Japan. Why can't they meet there as well? Yeah, well, why not? Exactly right. I mean, you know, what is the problem with doing that? And, and by the way, what's wrong with Zoom? You know, people still do that. We, if we're really interested in our carbon footprint, we can always get on the on the blower and just That's talk like, uh, like we did during the, the COVID period as well. So, look, I don't know. I, I just, I mean, I, I wasn't particularly excited about the visit from the president. I, you know, I would have hoped that he was... Uh, you know, available before 2 p.m. because I presume it was afternoon nap time after that. So uh, we're, we're all missing out. But, but I mean, what disturbs me is this sycophancy. Now, Albo says, our Prime Minister has said, quote, I've had the fortune of meeting with President Biden in Japan, in Madrid, mm. in Spain. Albo, Madrid is in Spain. You didn't have to say in Spain. In Japan, in Madrid, in Spain, in the UK, in the United States. And I'm pleased that President Biden is able to take up my invitation to address the parliament. Alex, would President Biden even remember Albo's name? <laughs> I don't know, Ellen. I don't know. But, but I mean, look, it is a bit, it's a bit embarrassing. But that's what we're getting out of Albo at the moment, is he loves getting on a plane, going around and mixing with the global glitterati. You know, he loves going to... Um, you know, uh, weddings of famous people and going off and shaking hands in foreign countries. So we, we're not surprised. We've seen a lot of that. And that's very much the modern left. You, you know, we see that in the United States as well. The Democrats do it. They're always, you know, on stage dancing with Beyonce or something else like that. So who's surprised? Not me. Uh, I just, you know, I, I like my politicians to be tough, frankly. Yeah, Simple right. as that. Only a fool talking about politicians would deny that the Liberal Party is in disarray and only a fool would deny that in spite of the cheerleaders in the media, the left have taken control and they've been thrashed across the continent. Alex, what is the answer? Well, look, you know, Alan, in, in South Australia, I think we're, we're seeing a very different, uh, different example. We've spent two years out there talking to people who would normally be Liberals but sometimes have drifted away, people who, who need to be involved at grassroots level but haven't understood how to get involved and how to actually cast a vote and, and vote for people who share their values. So the answer, to my mind, is getting out, doing the sorts of things we used to do, doing town halls. We've done heaps of them. We've done them in front of 500 people and in front of 20 people and said, if you share our values, if you are true big L liberals, then you've got to get involved. You've got to make sure that you join up, that you support candidates that share your values. Because the problem is, I think, that too often conservatives just leave it to someone else. And, and I think we've seen that all over the last 20 years. We, but conservatives think their institutions are in good shape. They are not. And that applies equally to the institution of politics. Well, so well, my yeah, answer yeah. is 
get involved. Okay, now, if you don't take, like it and you're whinging enough, yes, you have to get involved. That's right. Just take that get involved a step further because James Allen, who, as you know, originates from Canada, now a law professor at Queensland University, argues that the membership should choose the leader. He said in Canada, because of that, the Conservative Party has hundreds of thousands of members because they have a significant stake in electing the leader. It's a strong mm. point. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, it is a strong point. We've seen, I think the UK, they do that as well. And um, that, that gave us the, the last two prime ministers in the UK and before. So, uh, look, I think it's a very strong point. And I, and I think actually um, on all levels a plebiscite works. And, you know, I'm not suggesting radical constitutional change anywhere around. But, but you know, from where I sit, um, I think most of the membership of these parties are conservative. You don't join the Liberal Party uh, because you're worried about radical climate extremism. You join because, you you know, you're, you're into the basic values of freedom of association, religion, uh, and uh, individual freedom in itself. So, you know, I, from a conservative point of view, from a values point of view, I love a plebiscite model. I love it. Well, you've talked then just then about freedoms. Now, you've taken a courageous stand in South Australia and turned the show around there, but many are condemning you for withdrawing support for the Morrison government in your protest against vaccination mandates. But on the vaccination issue, you have been proven correct. Should people be unable to get a job because they're not vaccinated? You know, Alan, it feels like we've been talking about this for a long time. We've talked about it on your show before, and it's it's extraordinary that we're still talking about it. I, mean, I spoke to a couple of nurses last night here in South Australia who are still mandated out of the job, yes. and we can't get yeah. nurses. There are nurses shortages everywhere across the country, and some of these bureaucrats are still enforcing these these uh, these mandates. Some companies are still doing it on a private level. So the answer is no. There was never an argument for mandates. There was never any science behind it. There's never been any any science to support this. You're going to protect everyone else because we know transmission wasn't affected. So what was it really all about? I mean, yeah. I actually think this was one of the darkest periods in this country's Definitely. history. Definitely. And look, you're absolutely right. I, I don't resile from that at all. I mean, I, I, I have absolutely no difficulty with that. I, I think history is going to treat that period very, very poorly, and I'm proud to have stood against it. Absolutely, and we are too. Look, you've got another group, though, of people within the Liberal Party hatching plans, as I understand it, to create an LGBTIQ sub-branch to give transgender people a place inside the South Australian Liberal Party. Don't these transgender people want to be treated as equal, but they then also want to be separate? Well, I don't get it. This is, the, this is the point, Alan. I mean, the, the, the Liberal Party should be for anyone that shares the values of yep. Robert Menzies. And it, it doesn't matter whether you're LGBTIQ or plus, it doesn't make a difference. Nobody nobody has any problem with any of that. It's a great thing. But ultimately, what we want are people who share our values. And our, our branch system in this state and many other of the divisions around the country as well are based on geographic location, not ideology. We, we don't want to further split up the party into smaller subgroups, interest groups. So I don't have any time for this at all. I, I just I don't see a need for it. I don't think it's helpful. And I don't think we need to be further pushing ourselves into identity politics internally inside political 100%. parties. 100%. Now, where do you stand on this critical issue of Senate selection and places on the ticket? Anne Rustin, I understand, is number one. David Fawcett. I mean, sadly, no one's heard of David at number two. You're at number three. Um, where do you stand on that? Is there going to be an argument about places on the Senate ticket? Oh, look, Alan, I don't know. And I don't like commenting on, you know, internal no, party stuff, that. of course. But having said that, I, I, I look, I don't think it really matters. I just like to come back to Canberra and keep fighting for these values, frankly. I mean, it sounds like a trite statement. It sounds like a really political but statement. But might, they, like might someone politician. vote you to a position on the Senate ticket where you don't get back to Canberra? 
Well, I mean, it's, it really is. Once again, I hate to say this, but it's a matter for the membership. I, mm-hmm. I hope not, um, but uh, time will tell. And uh, I'll be putting my best case forward to, to be re-elected in a, in a winnable position. And um, we'll see where that lands. Should pre-selections automatically go to women to improve the percentage of women in the parliament, or should we always be pre-selecting on merit? Well, it's not going to surprise you, this answer. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure uh, share the views of almost everyone in the Liberal Party. I suspect that it should always be on merit. And, uh, you know, I, I think this this misnomer that we've got a problem with women inside the Liberal Party is just that. I think it is a misnomer. I, I don't see it at all. In fact, here in South Australia, with the last... Uh, the last pre-selection was a bloke, but before that, in the upper house, the last three were, were women and good women, and they weren't chosen because they were women. They were chosen because they were excellent. So, you know, I'm not sure this is a thing. I think we get sucked into this because the media allow it to be, um, you know, uh, sort of prosecuted this argument. But I, I just, we, we always, we have to go on merit. It doesn't matter. Once again, it's the same argument as the LGBT branch. You know, we don't, be, we shouldn't be dividing ourselves up. We're merit, merit, merit. And if we can do things to help women along, that's great. Then we should. Viewers are watching this and saying, what the hell is going on in the Liberal Party? Why isn't this bloke on the front bench? That's what they're saying. I love to comment, which I want to share with our viewers, that uh, Senator Alex Antich made. And he said recently, Australians do not want their politicians to resemble low-rent bureaucrats reading memorised talking points. They want authenticity and they want us to fight for our shared values. He said the voters of Australia have demonstrably rejected any suggestion that they want the Liberal Party to be a Labor light organisation. He said establishment politics will not win the day. We need to be brave and fight on all fronts. Just a quick word to amplify that, Alex. Yeah, look, Alan, I think the, the, the truth is I, I hear it everywhere. I mean, I was out um, last night in uh, in the regions talking to people and people were talking frankly about what they believed in. And it, and it was the sort of stuff that if you said it out loud, uh, you know, anywhere in Canberra, you know, the, the bubble over there would look at you strangely, but they weren't controversial topics. And it's strange that basic freedoms and, you know, people's, the things that people hold dear, like, you know, their faith and their freedom, all that sort of stuff is such a, a taboo topic. And I, I just... I don't, perhaps being brave is not actually what this is about. I just think speaking frankly is what mm. it's about. And I think Aussies are craving it. They, they want That's their politicians right. no to be doubt. authentic and tell them I what no they doubt think. about that. No you know, doubt I, about I just think, that. I just think fortune favours the bold yeah. and uh, none of us are racist. No. None of us are bigots. Mm. Uh, we've just got to be true. And look, the other thing I'll say, Alan, is I'm sick of seeing politicians with photos of dogs and chocolate. Like, give it a rest. Uh, you know, <laughs> let, let's, you know, everyone rolls about a dog. You know, just give it up. It's time to give it up. But let, let me ask you this. It hardly helps the Liberal Party image, does it, when a so-called leader in Victoria manages to ban from the Parliamentary Party a Liberal MP, Moira Deeming, who simply addressed a rally supporting safe spaces for women. She's just concerned about biological men playing women's sport and entering women's change rooms. She's never argued that it doesn't need anything other than debate. But some Nazi nutters Mm. gained access to the rally. I wonder why Daniel Andrews' police let them in. And now you've got a Liberal leader accusing this woman of being a Nazi sympathiser and banning her from the parliamentary Liberal Party. See, this is the issue, Alex. How can anyone vote Liberal when people like this fellow Pasuto can become a leader? Well, look, I mean, I, I have said it many times before, and I'll, and I'll say it again very comfortably. I, I don't understand what what Moira did wrong. I don't think she did anything wrong. I mean, effectively, she turned up, as you said, to, to a women's rights rally 
uh, and spoke about women's rights, you know, spaces for bathrooms, spaces in sport, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it was gatecrashed by these people. Uh, and somehow she's guilted by association as a result of that. Now, that sets a very dangerous bar, a very dangerous precedent, if that's the case. And by the way, every single Labor uh, politician out there that goes to a dinner where there are union hoodlums running around would want to be very careful about this now, because um, I don't think it's a fair test and I don't think they'd want to be judged by that standard. But when I look at some of these people, some of these great women like Moira, like Catherine Deves, um, women that are brave, women that are actually standing up for what they believe in. I'm, I'm reminded of the suffragette movement of, of many years ago and what those women must have gone through in order to get Absolutely. the vote, and, yes. you know, all those things that they did, threats, intimidation, ridicule. I just think we're seeing it all again, and it's really, really sad. Very sad um, So people need to speak in support of these women. They're it, brave. It, it's a mystery to people watching this program now as to why you aren't in the shadow ministry. I've already said that. I only raise that because your Liberal colleague in South Australia, Simon Birmingham, is... Didn't Peter Dutton say that the shadow ministry would be supporting the no case on The Voice? And didn't Birmingham say he wouldn't actively campaign for a no vote? How can he stay the leader of the opposition in the Senate? How can he stay in the shadow cabinet? Well, look, I, mean, I don't know the answer. There. I haven't spoken to Simon about his position. I read those comments in the media like, like you did. Uh, and I would hope that, that he would. I would expect that Simon, you know, would be supporting the no case. And I, I would expect that sitting on the front bench, everyone who does so uh, is obliged to actively campaign uh, against it. So, uh, look, I, I don't know. Those are matters for Peter. I don't, I don't seek to you know, tell him what to do with his, with his shadow cabinet by any stretch, but uh, I'll be out there campaigning. No, I can tell you strong and hard. We're already doing it. I've been doing so it for 12 I. months, by the way. I might so will I. Uh, so will I. Well, everyone yeah, got a voice. Uh, we, we, we don't need this in our country. No. No, not at, well, I'm going to ask you that. I mean, you're a lawyer, a lawyer before you're a politician. So simple question. Mm -hmm. How can Australians mm -hmm. ever support a race-based change to the Constitution? Yeah, look, that's, that is the, the, the only question really that needs to be asked here. And that's why I've pushed against this for 12 months. I, I don't need to know any more about it than simply that's it's going it. to divide us. I agree. And, and not only divide us, you know, like it's going to divide everyone. It's going to divide Australians of different backgrounds. It's going to divide Indigenous people as well, by the way. Not not every Jacinda Price, Jacinda Nepenjira Price is proof of that. Not every Aboriginal person in this country agrees with this, but not by a long shot. Most don't even know about it in many cases, because why would they? This is a, a city-based activist voice, uh, and it is. It, we don't need any more division in this country. I, I get the privilege of going to Parliament because it says Australian on my passport, just like it does for Jacinta. And that, that's really where you need to leave it. And people, the job for people like me is to give Australians the tools they need to understand that it's not racist to vote no to this. That's and right. In fact, well, the racists are the people voting yes. They're the ones who want a race-based change to the Constitution. But, I mean, we just changed the national anthem. Australians, let us all rejoice, for we are young and free. Mm. And we changed that to we are one and free. And now here we've got <laughs> Albanese and co saying we're not one at all. Just before you go, mm. the Kyoto Protocol was signed in 1997. And we were told all this alarmist talk, it had to happen, global warming, when it really was about making money. But when the globe didn't warm, it became climate change. When will we get a government in Canberra which says that we're not going to send this nation broke by demonising our most powerful resource, namely fossil fuels? There is no proof that carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, is causing any trouble. Who in the Liberal Party is prepared to put their, the alarmists in their place? 
I'll give it a go myself, um, Alan. I, uh, the science is uh, is not settled on this issue. We know it. Friends of ours like Professor Ian Plymer have made a very good case and continue to make a very good case to say that the science is far from settled. And in fact, uh, as we've seen in Europe over the last few months, people are actually dying of cold rather than dying of heat at the moment because they can't afford the power prices. So this is the very real scenario we face ourselves with now is that, that we're actually seeing a period of extreme poverty that's going to come as a result of some of these crazy climate policies and green policies. Um, I, I just think we've got to keep pushing. We've got to keep pushing nuclear. I'm really encouraged to see that debate going along. But, you know, we also need to stop demonising fossil fuels. And by the way, if you're going to go out protesting about fossil fuels, find yourself a hemp rope to climb down off a bridge, right? <laughs> just don't, don't. You know, don't use the plastic stuff because you're making yourself look silly. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Alex. Great to talk to you. Thanks and well. we'll keep talking. Congratulations on what you've done. Uh, I've got to tell you, this bloke is utterly unselfish. He's constantly doing things for the nation, not for himself. And he doesn't yield when there are a few people opposed to him. We need more of these people and the Liberal Party can revive its fortunes. Great to talk to you, Senator Ancic. There he is, Alex Ancic you from too. South Thanks, Australia. Alan. Good on you. Thank you. Thanks. As you know, I spent the Anzac week in Queensland doing Anzac Day things, which I have written about in The Spectator. And you can find that there online this week and also on my Facebook page, an extraordinary week. I was astonished that wherever I went, people did want to speak to me about The Voice, but everybody spoke also about the crime levels in Queensland. I'd no sooner returned than I read from the Cairns Post in North Queensland, a story by Peter Carruthers. And it began, and I quote, Four days after her car was stolen, a waree mum of four was targeted again by masked intruders who smacked her husband in the head with multi-grips. And the story says, quote, this was just one of the harrowing stories told at a crime forum on Wednesday. Last month, Caroline Barnes woke to two strangers in her living room. Her husband, protecting four kids under five, got into a scuffle with one offender while Miss Barnes bundled up the children, barricaded herself in the bedroom and called triple O. As Caroline Barnes said, it's a pretty scary thing having your home violated like that, not feeling safe in your own home. Well, I spoke to people in Toowoomba who had identical experiences, waking up at 2am with two thugs in the hallway. Another family in broad daylight intercepted three teenagers who apparently felt it was easier to steal than to work, and they were about to let themselves loose in the garage. Another family out for dinner decided, this is all in Toowoomba, not to drink, they filled me with information, not to drink and drive, they left two cars in the garage. The car keys, as we all do, were left in a bowl in the kitchen. They came home, the house had been ransacked, they got the car keys, both cars were gone, and the house was a mess. David Christopher Lee is the opposition leader in Queensland. A YouGov poll sees the coalition in front 51 to 49. But in the light of everything else, which we don't have time to canvas here, but could be identified by one word, corruption in Queensland, I find it staggering that the lead is only 51-49. The LNP primary vote was 39% in the YouGov poll, Labor 33. In the 2020 election, Anastasia Palaszczuk got 39 0.6% of the first preference votes. The then opposition of Frecklington had a primary vote of 35. So there you are. The LNP have gone from 35 to 39. Labor have gone down from 39 to 33. And ALP sources say the poll also shows David Christofulli successfully prosecuting his arguments 
attacking the government on issues such as youth crime, health and the cost of living, exacerbating the it's time sentiment amongst voters. Now, I'm not sure about the 51-49 two-party preferred. If David Crisofuli can't win seats in Brisbane, he most probably can't win the election. He joins me. David, can you win seats in Brisbane? And if so, how? Queensland is a yearning for change, Alan. And you mentioned Caroline. I met her on the back deck of that house. And when we went to Parliament in Cairns, I didn't want just that homogenised, sanitised version of events where people all sit in this building and people come there and tell everything how great it is. I wanted to go out and meet the real people and listen on the streets. And her story moved me. And you mentioned about the trauma of shielding four young kids under five. You mentioned the trauma of her husband whacked over the head with multigrips. They also told me about subsequently what happened. They've been broken into and had their car stolen before and after that event. They told me that their insurance premiums on their business has gone from eight grand to 20 grand a year. Their excess has gone from 1,000 to 5,000. So their ability to claim is, is, is almost negligible. They told me about the emotional impacts on the kids saying, mummy, is the bad man coming back today? And I listen to those stories and that's what drives me, Alan. And everywhere I go, a Queenslander, as you experience when you're in Queensland for, for Anzac Day, everywhere I go, someone tells me their story about their interaction with the broken law and order system, their interaction with the failing health system, their interaction with their kids not being able to afford a home. They're the things that drive me. And Queenslanders want to know that good change can occur. And uh, we, as a party, we're unified, we're focused, we're disciplined, and we're hungry to serve. And, um, and I'm determined to bring the change this state needs. Well, you, you have been criticised about hesitancy to take a stance on issues and your Labor rivals believe that's your weakness. What then do you do? It's, we can talk about the crime. I think everyone knows it. What do you do which will arrest this issue of crime? Three things. One, consequences for actions. And that means rewriting the Broken Youth Justice Act to put the rights of the victim ahead of the rights of the offender. Two, unshackle the judiciary, and that means removing this absolute nonsense of detention being a last resort. That is written in the act. It's got to be gone. And three, I'm talking about gold standard early intervention, and that is to turn kids around before they're holding a knife at their throat, before they're ramming a police car. And I, every time I hear the Premier talk about the hundreds of millions that are spent on on uh, early intervention, it's not working. So let's look at what the best of the world is. Let's have a look at what is in Queensland that we should be backing and let's turn kids around. So see, in Toowoomba, eight years ago, the act... In Toowoomba, the, I asked these, these owners, homeowners, I said, well, what happens when the police get these people? The police tell them, well, one, we're under-resourced, that's the first thing, and secondly, we arrest them, we shove them in court and magistrates let them go. Well, the magistrates are enforcing the rules that the politicians set. So blame the state government for weak laws. And they watered down the laws in 2015. They boasted about it. They bragged about it when they did it. And on the back of it, you got eight years of a generation of a pipeline, homegrown young crims. You mentioned Toowoomba. Uh, I was in Toowoomba just the other day, and that was once a city that was they didn't fear things like this. People are now actively talking about it. You had a gentleman killed in the main street waiting for a taxi. And I was listening to a conversation the other night where 
the first person said, I've got a pretty nice car, so I hide my keys under the pillow. The person beside him said, that's crazy. The last thing you want is some running through your house. I put my keys at the front door. My daughter's bedroom is the first one. The last thing I want is them going through my daughter's bedroom. And the third person said, can you believe we're having this discussion? In a modern Queensland, people are discussing where to leave your keys mm. because of a sense of inevitability that someone's going to be in your home. It's got to change, and that's why we've put for those solutions. Well, the government I has spoke said, about breach. The government said it would deliver 1,450 new police officers by 2025. Uh, two questions, will they? And secondly, is Queensland so short of police personnel that you need another 1,450? Uh, let me be really clear, Alan. There are less police today than two years ago in Queensland, despite the population boom. So, so to be really, really clear, there are less full-time frontline coppers today than two years ago. The government made a promise to put on an extra 1,450 to deal with the escalation in crime, to deal with the growth and they've gone backwards. Now, the minister uses weasel words and he says, oh, we've got these approved positions. You can't dial triple O and book in an appointment with an approved officer for two and a half months' time. It's about boots on the ground and they are leaving faster than they can be replaced. And our solution is empowering them, giving them the resources they need, giving them the laws to put them back in the driver's seat. It's a broken system, Alan. It, yeah. it truly well, is okay. a broken system. The government system now says, responding, of course, to your observations, the government says it's trying to entice new police recruits with a $20,000 relocation allowance, a special cost of living allowance, and they've waived live-in costs for recruits at police academies. Will that work? We'll welcome anything. But how about you start by valuing the ones you got who are leaving faster and you replace them? How about you admit that the laws are broken and give them the laws they need and how about start listening to them and accepting some responsibility. No one accepts responsibility in this government. It's almost as though it's always someone else's problem. The minister the other day was saying, oh, it's the commissioner's fault because the approved position. Come on, it's a Westminster system of government. Ministers must be held accountable. And at the moment in Queensland, no one is ever held accountable. The, the, the best the Premier can come up with is some cobbled together reshuffle where the same faces get the same pay, sit around the same table. She's checked out, Alan, and Queenslanders are seeing it for what it is. Well, she's announced a 30 or 40 bed youth jail to be located in state-owned property alongside the Lotus Glen Correctional Centre. That's about, I think, 25 kilometres south of Mariba. Lotus Glen's a high-security male facility, and this is a metaphor of the problem, I guess. It's got a capacity for 452 prisoners, 71% of whom are Indigenous. Is there, David Christofuli, a timeline? Is there money for this youth jail? Uh, no planning, uh, not a single cent in the budget. Uh, no idea about what the actual format will look like. No, no understanding of what sort of programs are in there to try and turn them around. It's a thought bubble. And it's a thought bubble they made 12 months ago and they still haven't fleshed out the details. It, it, it is sad to see the breakdown in service delivery in this state. And as a proud Queenslander who loves the place and truly believes in the future of this state, the commitment I can give Queenslanders is an end to the chaos and the crisis and the return of calm and considered leadership. That's what people are yearning for. All right, for well, everyone's talking about rising cost of living 
And you've talked in relation to consumers, and I think your words, to arrest the rising costs that people are dealing with. How do you do that? Well, the number one thing is housing, Alan, and whether that be the uh, repayments people are paying on their house or the rent that they're paying, housing is a direct response to the supply. Now, I've got three solutions and I've put them forward to the government and I don't know why they don't swallow their pride and listen because they're solutions we've picked up by listening to the community. The first is infrastructure partnerships with councils. That enables new opportunity, new land, new units to open up. That gets young kids in the market to be able to buy their first home. It helps people who want to rent by increasing supply. The second is the community housing sector. When I have a look at other jurisdictions across the political divide, there has been a an unleashing of the secu- of the community housing sector in Queensland. We have barely moved the needle. They are hungry to serve and hungry to do more, and yet there's a philosophical aversion from people like Mick DeBrenny that is is not delivering that. And the third is social housing, and that's the housing for the truly most needy in our community. Demand for social housing has increased by 70% since the government came to power nearly a decade ago. Supply has moved by less than 2%. That is a failing. And uh, we've got to hold ministers accountable. You set a target, you measure it, you hold them accountable along the way. Energy costs are a massive factor in cost of living. Do you believe that the energy future in Queensland can be met by renewable energy? Um, anyone who says that there isn't a place for good old-fashioned, reliable, baseload energy is telling you porky pies. And I do believe... So you're, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me get it, David. Why are you frightened of saying coal-fired power? Oh, no, no, I'm not frightened of it. So uh, I want well, to see, rephr- those, rephrase I want your see answer. those generators. Rephrase your answer. Well, well, okay, so let me be really clear. When I talk about baseload power, I'm talking about coal and gas, and we need it, Alan. We need it. We need it for industries. We need it to keep the lights on. And I'll tell you why we also need it. People want to know that their electricity can be affordable and reliable and sustainable. Now, there was a a report came out only a couple of weeks ago, and it shows that in the last quarter, power prices in Queensland increased by 32%, and they were static in Victoria and New South Wales. Scratch beneath the surface, you will find that the generators at Calide, that's coal-fired powered stations, have been offline. Is it any wonder why there's an escalation? So I, I am all for being part of a transition to a renewable green future, but I'm not going to walk away from affordable, reliable power, and there is a place for baseload energy by things like coal and gas in this state. Okay, so an investor is listening to you and you're likely to be the next Premier of Queensland and you will say, I will approve coal-fired power stations, even a new coal-fired power station, uh, so that we can be guaranteed cheaper energy and the uh, continuance of supply. Now, does the Federal Environment Minister have the capacity to overrule you when you give such an approval? Uh, the federal government can always try to step in. But in the end, if you make a, a credible case for whatever you're looking to do, I think in the end that's the greatest gift you can give your residents. So whether or not that's talking about laws to address crime, whether or not that's talking about the need for a proper plan to deal with housing or meeting the market with energy. Now, I, I'm not going to stand in the way of anyone who comes forward with a plan 
to deliver energy for Queenslanders. If the market is saying that it wants to uh, approve renewables, if the market is saying it wants to develop coal, if the market says gas, why should we stand in the way of that? That we, we must have a commitment to Queenslanders to deliver them energy that is affordable, reliable and sustainable. All right. And it would be a brave federal government that would step in over the top of the market saying they want to meet demand. Yeah, in oh, well, they most probably have gone over the cliff by the time you become Premier anyway with this ridiculous energy policy they've got now. Now, what you mentioned this Cabinet meeting in, in Cairns. What's all this nonsense that the Palaszczuk government had that meeting and passed a treaty process allegedly setting the standard in Indigenous government relations to recognise the amount of land taken by, oh, this is an invention, by British colonial forces and the impact of massacres. Do you agree with all of this? My understanding is the Coalition voted in favour of it. Well, Alan, there wasn't a single mention about any of that in the bill. And let me tell you what I spoke about in my contribution. Uh, they talk about truth-telling. I do want to tell some truths and I want to do some good for Indigenous people. The truth I want to tell about is what is happening in those communities today and I want a plan to fix it. When I met with the Mayor of Yarrabah, let me tell you what he spoke to me about. He wants education, he wants the ability for his young kids to get a job and he wants better housing options. So as part of this process, you bet I'm going to sign on for KPIs to deliver a world-class education system to try and lift young Indigenous kids out of poverty. Now, there was no mention in the debate about compensation. There was no mention about any of this. But hang on, this bloke, Minister this Crawford, had David Crawford talked mm. about partnerships. He talked about government Indigenous partnerships and he actually said these mm. treaties will be worth hundreds of millions of dollars each, each, God knows where the money comes from, Queensland's swimming in debt, and we don't know what these treaties will cost, except the minister talks in hundreds of millions of dollars. Now... Yeah, but I don't... Yeah, well, Alan, I don't care what the minister says. I care what the legislation says, and the legislation doesn't say that. And what my well, intention is about 150 Indigenous nations. Do you, yeah, believe, in, talk do you about believe in 150 Indigenous nations in Queensland? No, I believe in... No, I know One there Queensland. are 17 local government... One so, Queensland. Yeah, absolutely, there are... Yes, Alan. And there are 17 local Indigenous governments, and I've been in every single one of them. And I'm not sure many other people in that parliament can say that. I have been in every one of those communities. And in every one of them, I have seen horrendous housing, water that in some cases animals you wouldn't, you wouldn't give to. That's the standard of water in some of those places, housing that is overcrowded, education that's not being delivered. And the Labor Party in Queensland have been in power for the better part of the last 30 of the last 35 years. So if you want to talk about money, if you want to talk about KPIs, if you want to talk about lifting Indigenous people out of poverty, I'm on. Uh, I believe in it and I'll fight for it. That's what I want to see. That's right. the kind of truth-telling and accountability. Good now, And I know what the legislation speaks about and the framework there, and it wasn't what the Minister has spoken about subsequently. Mm. Good to talk to you. We'll leave it there. There's plenty of things to talk about. We'll have you on again shortly. Keep it all up. The Queenslanders need you. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate your time. There he is, David Christofulli, an impressive leader of the opposition in Queensland. But by gee, they're big issues, aren't they? Well, before we go, the Chalmers budget discussion seems to have dried up, doesn't it? It shouldn't. There are two clear winners from this budget. Let me take the first lot. Australia's welfare recipients and the Dole merchants 
with their hands in someone else's pocket. The budget shows that more than 900,000 Australians on JobSeeker will get an extra $40 a fortnight. That'll take the fortnightly payment for a single person with no children to over $730 a fortnight. The extra $40 a fortnight will also go to people on youth allowance, Ausstudy and other government payments. The other clear winner in Labor's budget is the Canberra bubble. The budget shows that the Albanese government is hiring another 11,000 public servants, extra 11,000. This takes the number of bureaucrats in Canberra to a whopping 191,861. I know you're listening to this and nearly throwing up. The budget also shows that these public servants will get a cool 10.5% pay rise, the highest pay rise in over 10 years. And that's just the beginning, hang on. If there's one thing that stands out in this budget, it's the Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water. The number of bureaucrats at the Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water will increase by a whopping 60%. Labor, of course, needs the manpower to continue shutting down our coal mines and our energy intensive industries. On top of this, there are 190 bureaucrats working at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, 190. There are 1,754 bureaucrats working at the Bureau of Meteorology. There are 388 public servants at the Clean Energy Regulator. There are another 65 at the Climate Change Authority. The woke madness doesn't stop there. There are 2,363 bureaucrats working across Aboriginal hostels, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, Indigenous Business Australia, the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, the National Australia Day Council, the National Indigenous Australians Agency, the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation, and the Torres Strait Regional Authority. Who needs a voice? when you need all of these thousands of bureaucrats. Meanwhile, the quality of life, of course, in remote indigenous communities has drastically deteriorated. And at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, oh, yeah, that's it. There is one of them, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. There are 59 bureaucrats doing God knows what. Now remember, it's not laughable, you're paying for this and you're paying for it while your power bills rise by 20%. Your grocery shopping costs 8% more. Your rents or mortgage repayments are up by 10% and 50% respectively. There's nothing pro-worker about the Labor Party anymore. It's become the party of the won't work, the rent seekers and the time-wasting overindulged public servants. I think the 67% of voting Australians who didn't vote for the Albanese government were very smart. And I can't imagine they're very happy about what's going on as a result of a party in power with 32% of the primary vote. Well, that's it from me for this week. We'll catch up again next week. Don't forget, you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow morning. Actually, I should say 6 tomorrow morning. 6am is tomorrow morning, so never mind. You just search Alan Jones on your <laughs> app, podcast app. Search Alan Jones. Look, thank you for being with ADH. Tell your friends. We say things here that you need to know, but that others are afraid to tell. So thanks for being with us. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.